Well, I feel a little silly today. Uh, first of all, a couple weeks ago, I told you that my dog runs away, and he's, he's gone uh, right now. We don't know where he is. Um, he'll show up. He'll be fine. He has, a, he has a, a tag on, and it says his name and our old address. We got to change that. Um, and our phone number. And then at the bottom is a little quote from Grover, and it just says, I'm an idiot. <laughs> so he'll show up. I also feel a little silly because, um, you know, full disclosure, uh, we've just got a lot going on. And uh, today's our daughter's birthday, our oldest daughter's birthday. And she's nine today, which is a lot of fun. But uh, I mean, any of you with, with kids who have, you know, approached a, a birthday, you know that like the days and maybe the week, hopefully not much more than a week, but the days and week leading up to that birthday can be a little chaotic. And so we're, we're, we're getting ready to celebrate a birthday. We're coming up with all the kinds of plans and finding out the things that she wants to do, where she wants to eat, all these kinds of things. And um, then in the middle of this week, you, you might have gotten an email from me. Uh, just asking for, for a little bit of help here as Sanctuary navigates some financial situations. Uh, coming out of the summer, we had a couple unexpected expenses. We had, uh, we're also just kind of learning what it is to be in a building and in, a, in, a, in a, a permanent space. And so there's some maintenance things that have to happen. There's some transition stuff that has to happen. So you might have gotten that email from me. And then last night at about 10 o'clock p.m., I'm getting ready to write my sermon for today, as you do when it's your kid's birthday and you just got stuff going on and it's like, Saturday night, here we go. Let's, let's figure this out. I open the text and I'm like, oh, these all have to do with money. That wasn't on purpose, but we kind of have to talk about money today. <laughs> so don't read into it. It's just what the lectionary brought us to. I didn't choose this, I didn't pick this, and again, I feel a little silly, but here we are, so we've got to talk about it. I want to draw our attention first to uh, not this gospel text that I think is, is so fascinating, but to a text that's going to take us back to about 600 BC, about 584 or so. This is the prophet Jeremiah, and we won't, we won't read it all, but in this moment, Jeremiah, the prophet, the weeping prophet, he, uh, he's given some good news to the people of Israel and he's given them some bad news. And it's the bad news that's, that's gotten him in trouble. And the trouble that he's found himself in is that he's, uh, he's being held captive, he's being imprisoned in the palace in Jerusalem. So that's the context. And at the very same time that he's, he's being held prisoner in the palace, right outside the gates, is the Babylonian Empire. They've come, they are actively engaged in battle, they're laying siege, the text says, to the city of Jerusalem, and the people of God know, okay, this is not going to end well. This is kinda like, uh, if you ever saw Encanto, and again, all you parents are like, oh, please, not more. 
Uh, and there's the Bruno character, right? And he's just, he's just telling the people what's going to happen, but like everybody gets really mad at him because they think that him telling them what's going to happen is actually making the things happen. But he's like, it's not me. I'm just telling you this is, this is going to happen. So he became a kind of pariah, right? This is what happens to Jeremiah. He tells the people of God, this is what's going to happen. It starts to happen. They get mad at him. They put him in prison. And while this is happening, it's, the text says that the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah and the word is that someone is going to come and tell him to buy a piece of land. So somebody's going to come, somebody's going to show up and say, Jeremiah, I want you to buy this. And because it's the word of the Lord, Jeremiah feels like when that happens, I need to say, okay. So sure enough, a person comes and says, Jeremiah, I want you to buy this piece of land. But this piece of land isn't just any piece of land. This piece of land is actually part of the piece of land where Jeremiah came from part of his family's land. And he agrees to buy it for 17 shekels, nothing, for hardly anything. So the story goes that they, they weigh out the shekels, they bring in the witnesses, they lay out the documents, everything gets signed. Everything's ready to go. And then Jeremiah says, all right, now take these documents, take the terms and conditions, roll these things up, and stick them in an earthenware jar. Put them in a jar and seal it up tight so that they'll be kept for a long time. And then this is how this story ends, is Jeremiah reminding the people, for thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. Now remember, what's happening? The people of God are actively in the moment, in the process of being overthrown. Babylonians are here, waging war, coming to drag us off into exile. And here is Jeremiah in prison, signing pieces of paper, wrapping them up, putting them in a jar and saying, houses and fields and vineyards will someday again be bought and sold in this land. Remember, he's in jail because he said all of the wrong things. He's in jail because he's telling the people of God, this is what's gonna happen to you. And they couldn't hear that word. They wanted him to be optimistic. They wanted him to be full of hope. But instead, he's just telling them, this is the way these things are gonna pan out. This reminded me a little bit of the kind of, the kind of hope that he's bringing to the world, the kind of hope that, that Jeremiah is offering to the people of God. It is, it's a word of hope and not a word of optimism. Optimism is going to ignore all of the signs that point to this is not going to go your way. Optimism and hope are not synonymous. Hope can actually look at the world actually look at what's going on around us and say, man, this all looks like it's not going to go well. But maybe, somehow, in some way, things will turn around. And for Christians, what it means when we say things will turn around is just to say maybe God will be faithful. God will be faithful to, to us. 
This is an act of hope that Jeremiah is engaging in. Houses and fields and vineyards will again be bought in this land, even while the battle is raging right outside their doors. This reminded me a bit of the parable of the sower and the seeds. You remember this text? Some words, some seeds that are scattered, they fail because they're never received rightly. They can't even begin to be taken in. Some seeds that are scattered, some word that's sown, it sits on the soil and, and it's immediately responded to. It's received rightly, but it's, it's actually acted upon too quickly. I, I read this story this week of this pastor and he was, he was engaging another, another pastor for some spiritual direction. They've been meeting for a long time. And this one pastor who's been receiving this spiritual direction, one day he shows up for this, this, this direction, spiritual direction appointment. And he's just come from CrossFit. <laughs> so he's all fired up. And he tells the spiritual director, I feel like I've received a word from the Lord that what I am supposed to be doing, what God wants me to be doing, is going all through the city planting churches planning all these different churches in, in this community. And the spiritual director said, okay, can we sit with that for about six months? Let's pray about that. Let's see what kind of things God starts to do, what kind of doors God starts to open. Let's see where this leads. But can we not act on it or, or be too bold or too excited just yet? <laughs> and you can see where this is going. This pastor gets all ticked off. He leaves. He never goes back to this guy for spiritual direction. Why? Because the word came to him and he wanted to act on it quickly. But this is the seed that dies out. Because it's not given time to actually soak in. It's not given time to be received, to let the roots start to actually form so that when God starts to do something, there's something of substance there. There's been that, that patient ferment that's taken place. We need the word that is given. We need it to have time to go down, to spread roots as that word comes to fruition in us. Part of the work that God is doing in our life is the work of time. That oftentimes we want to, to rush to make things happen. And God is saying, be patient. We don't want to rush too quickly to get, to do, to fix, to have. The deed that Jeremiah signs and then he puts in a jar, it's kept and it's held until the time comes. Our impatience often demands a word that satisfies us immediately. But this is the work not of God, not, not the work of patience, not the work of faithfulness. That, that's the work of propaganda in our lives. Propaganda is what we come to say, what we come to do so that people will act in the ways that we want them to act quickly. That's how you know it's propaganda, is that it's, it's, it's efficient. It gets things done. What we need is the wisdom in our lives to discern those things that are genuinely urgent and demand our attention from the things that we're being told require our attention. And one of the markers to help us discern what is urgent from what is propaganda is whether or not we are full of fear or whether we are full of hope. 
If it's a word that we can let work in us over time, or if it's an impatient rush to get things done, to satisfy some desire. Jeremiah sees the urgency of signing this deed. Remember, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this is going to happen and you need to get it done. But it wasn't out of propaganda. It was out of hope. It wasn't, I'm going to do this so that the battle that's raging never actually makes its way in. It's saying, you know what? Even though all of this is going to go to ruin, I can still engage in this faithful act that leads to a word of hope for the future. This is the opposite of how, <laughs> of how we think prophecy works. This is the opposite of, of how we think leadership works and how we think evangelizing and spreading the gospel actually works. I think, I think we're prone to believing that prophecy and leadership and evangelizing, it only works once we have a kind of proof of concept. <laughs> It only works once we have enough stories or we have enough evidence to show people that, hey, the grass really is greener on the other side. Look, I'm standing on it. But the, the, the true invitation to the gospel isn't that the grass is greener and here I can show you. The true invitation to the gospel is to hold out. The invitation to the gospel is to hope to believe that a better word has been spoken. Remember, Jeremiah, he never gets to live on the land that he's just purchased. That's not part of Jeremiah's story. He never ends up actually living there. He never, ever, he, he never gets to plant a seed or a vineyard, reap a harvest. Jeremiah is trying to bring people along into a vision of the life that God has promised for them. But this is, this is one of the other markers that differentiates between a promise and propaganda, not just a quick fix, but the idea that if you just do what I do, one day you can have what I have. That's propaganda. That's not promise. If you just do what I do, you can have what I have. Jeremiah isn't living in the land of promise, saying to all the people whose, whose homes and lives and families are being destroyed, hey, hold out, because one day you can come live like I'm living. Jeremiah goes into exile right along with them. That doesn't feel prophetic. It doesn't feel like leadership. It doesn't feel like evangelizing but it's faithfulness. This is what makes Jeremiah's actions prophetic. They're still going into exile. The battle is at the gates. This is going to happen. But by his purchase, his, his prophetic action is reminding the people, God has not abandoned you in exile. Daniel Berrigan's commentary on Jeremiah. I love this. He says that the mere purchase surpasses itself. It was just to say that the action goes beyond the actual action. He says the act dramatizes the truth of verbal prophecy, bespeaks the ending of war and resumed rhythms of peace as spelled out by Jeremiah at the end of his transaction. Houses and fields and vineyards will again be bought in this land. He has enacted a peaceable drama. Therefore, peace is possible. 
Oh, read that again. He has enacted a peaceful drama and therefore peace is possible. Peace might once more become the native ground of mind and heart. And this, even during a siege of terror, when all but a few are trading mortal blows, sweating through destruction and violent death, the actuality presently consuming in the midst of war, an act of peace. In the midst of war, an act of peace. That's what Jeremiah has just enacted. And in enacting it, he's saying that this is a future that is possible for us. And the word for us today, the act of peace in the midst of war, this is the Eucharist. That in the midst of war, a work of peace takes place. Every week we come to the table and we are sealing up a word of peace in the midst of war, trusting that a new future really is possible for us. And what are we sealing up that word? What is the vessel? You and me. We are the earthenware jars in which the word is being kept until the right time. We are taking in that word that in this field of our lives, our bodies, our world, there will be peace again. There must be peace again because look at what we just dramatized. Because of the peaceful action, peace is possible. So what does that look like? Unfortunately, for all of us, the gospel and much of the New Testament tells us that one of the most obvious ways that we live into this promise and into this way of peace happens to be what we do with our money. <laughs> Ugh. Our New Testament text today is out of 1 Timothy 6. This will sound familiar to you because we actually, we, we quote lines from 1 Timothy 6 every week when we come to our offering liturgy. Let me read a piece of this. Of course, there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world so that we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. As for those who in the present age are rich, commend them not to be haughty or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, the uncertainty of wealth, but rather on God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, generous and ready to share, thus storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of the life that really is life. Listen, there are going to be people who are rich. There always have been, there always will be. And notice there's a line in here that says that the, 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 the root of, of evil, let me get this right. We've often heard it, the root of evil is money. That's not what the text says. Money is not the root of evil. It is a root of evil, is what the text tells us. 
So we've misquoted this time and time again, and we've made people feel all kinds of ways about what it is to have money and to be rich, and what are we to do with this, <laughs> this dynamic. But because it is a root, we, we have to be guarded about how we hold money dear to us. Money here is the problem, not wealth. And there is a difference between money and wealth. It's, it's the love of money, not the love of wealth, that actually creates the problem in our lives. Because wealth is one thing. But the desire to be able to use something, to control something that can't really be controlled, that money is a, is a kind of technology for us to gain control over parts of our lives that really can't be controlled, that's what has to be resisted in us. Think about the ways that we think money actually enables us to, to become to take on the characteristics that really only belong to God. That if I have money, I can go wherever I want to go. I'm omnipresent. If I have enough money, I have access to all of the resources and the technologies that can give me the kind of information that I need. I'm, I'm omnipotent. We think that money can actually be used to help control parts of our lives. And that's not what it is to be content. There isn't inherently stuff that's wrong with stuff. <laughs> stuff isn't bad. Stuff is bad when it becomes the source of our joy rather than a kind of conduit from which we receive joy. Christ alone is our joy and our salvation. And as soon as we start to look to other things to fill the kind of role that God has, has taken up in our lives, as soon as it replaces that, that's where we get in trouble. The question that we need to be asking is, are you or are you not at peace with the fact that most of what happens in your life is outside of your control? And you don't get to have a say in almost everything that happens to you. Most of us were trained, we're, we're habituated to desire control in some way. If we just had a little bit more money, if we just had a little bit more political posturing, we could be the ones in control. We could be the ones who, who make things go our way. And it seems to me that much of the Christian life is about letting go of control. Bonhoeffer, in his, in his book, Life Together, he talks about the ways that we, we, we so desire control that we can't keep our mouths shut. <laughs> and he says this, that one of the best things we can do for our neighbor is not speak. Hold your tongue. That often it's what we don't say, the way that we don't try to control the conversation to influence other people's thinking. That is the best way for us to relinquish control. Silence is the act of sealing up that word in a jar, keeping it for the right time, the faithful time. Listen, I have met people who make more money in a month than I will ever see in my lifetime. People that are absolutely dead to their money. And I've also met people who have next to nothing, who are so obsessed with the hustle and the grind because they've got to get what they can get and they love to get. 
It's not about having a lot or having a little. It's about our love of the thing that is the problem. Sometimes it's in not having it that is actually spurring on our love for it. And that way, it's not just the rich who have to be careful with their whole relationship with money. It's the poor who so desire that money that it becomes a kind of misplaced love, a disoriented love in them. If you're not sure how to distinguish between the love of wealth and the love of money, maybe asking yourself whether you're guilty of loving money if you're loving wealth, Paul tells us here that the marker to help distinguish is contentment. Godliness with contentment. Think about Adam and Eve. Here they are, made in the image of God, walking in the cool of the day with God, and still there's some discontentment in them. The temptation latches itself on that discontentment and says, you can be if you do. If we're not careful, God just becomes a resource for us to get what we think we want. And if, if other people aren't getting what they want, then we think it's because somehow they're living lives that are unfaithful. God would really bless them. God would really do for them if they just did this. And in the same way, we think that when things are going our way, when things are happening for us, when our lives are going well, we oftentimes think it must be because God is blessing me. And he's blessing me because I'm living rightly. But in doing so, we, we tend to create this kind of hierarchy where the people who are blessed, the people who are rich, who have wealth, are the people who are living their lives in a way that God is blessing. And the people who have not are people who God would bless if they just really get their stuff together. We create a hierarchy where Jesus is Lord and then those that he blesses and then those who aren't blessed and then those who are cursed. But Jesus is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Origen says that he is the king of kings. He's not the king of subjects. He is the Lord of lords, not the Lord of slaves. God means for us to become equal, where we are all kings, where we are all lords in our own way, that we don't have to strive and live in competition with one another in order to get something that we think God's not gonna, not gonna give us unless we do this. We don't have to live in that kind of competition with one another. God means to bring us into his own life and at the center of God's own life is the cycle of gift the perfect giving and perfect receiving of love and mutual co-equal community. That's what God wants for us. Which brings us to our gospel. There's a lot to say here and not enough time to say it all. First, I think we need to remember because this is a, a kind of strange text where you have one person who's in Hades, one person who's in the bosom of Abraham. And there's a chasm that's been fixed and no one can cross this chasm. And if you send someone here, they can't get there. And if someone from there tries to come here, they can't get here either. 
what's going on? First, remember, this is a parable. This is a story that Jesus is telling to first century Jewish listeners. And the way that the, the, the afterlife works for these people, the understanding of the kind of metaphysical realities of the afterlife are much different than, than what we believe and what we trust. And so to die and to die faithfully isn't to go to heaven for them. It's to be found in this place called the bosom of Abraham, which is why he's with Abraham. And it's here where the faithful are, are, are kept and they're cared for until the day of the resurrection. And then this other man is in, is in this place of Hades. The rich man has found himself in Hades. We don't know exactly what that space constitutes. But what we're meant to see, we should be asking ourselves, by the way, we're having a lot of fun in our, our small book Sunday school. Um, there's about 15 of us that keep showing up together and it's been really great. Uh, we were talking today about, about the Bible and it's part of what we, have to, what we have to face when we're engaging texts like this is we need to be asking ourselves, what is it that God wants us to hear? What are the important parts? What are the things that actually tell us something about who God is in our life together? So I think what's important are not all the questions about what is the chasm and what is this place of Hades and is it an eternal conscious torment or we don't need to be asking those questions. We should be saying, what does God want us to hear? And I think this is part of it. That the rich man, even in death, has the same mentality that he had while he was alive. He's died, but he's not, he's not dead. He hasn't realized the whole point of the story is that the old system is over. The old, the old system doesn't work anymore. Even in death, he hasn't learned to see Lazarus any differently. He still believes the status that he had means that he has control even now over events and other people. Lazarus, go get me a drink. At the heart of this story, we have to be confident that death in Christ has become a door into life, into God. The tragedy of this story is not that this man has, has died. It's that he can't die because he's afraid that death is the end. He can't let go of the way that he used to think the world works. He can't put that behind him because he thinks it's still how the world works. Ironically, he needs to die so that he can learn that death is not the end. This is the Christian hope in this story, that it's only in dying that he can learn that death is a stage on the way to the resurrection. This is what we believe about the resurrection, that in the life of the world to come, God isn't adjusting all of the systems to work a little more efficiently or a little more perfectly. God has laid to rest. God has put to death all of the systems that we've made for ourselves and invites us instead into resurrection life. The end of life isn't death. The end of death is resurrection. And it's death that we can either learn to embrace now or we can learn to embrace later. That's exactly what we find in the rich man. He's dead, but he hasn't died in a way that's brought him through to life. Instead, this great chasm has been fixed between him and Abraham. It says, if Moses and the prophets can't do it, if Abraham can't do it, who can? 
And remember, this is Jesus putting these words in Abraham's mouth. From Abraham's understanding, no one can cross this chasm. But we're standing here on the other side of the resurrection. Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem to be crucified. And we know that there is one who went down into death. And not just into death and then back to life, but into death and all the way through death into new creation. And it's new creation that spans the chasm, that comes to those places that we thought no one could reach us. Remember what the text says, even if someone dies and is brought back to life again, they wouldn't believe. We should hear that with a little bit of humor, with a little bit of tongue in cheek, as Jesus is saying, (laughs) I'm going to be the one who goes into death all the way through the other side and changes their mind. They don't even know what's about to happen. Every week, we come to this table. We come to this meal. I'm thinking about the rich man and the scraps that are falling from his table. Remember at the, the beginning of the text, it says, at the gate, at the gate was this man, Lazarus. We think that Jesus leads us through a gate that actually leads us to prosperity, that leads us to a better life for ourselves. The gate that Jesus opens isn't a gate into prosperity, into a better life. The gate that Jesus opens leads us right back to our brothers and our sisters, leads us right back to where Lazarus is laying hungry, tired. And so we come here and this gate, at this table, we find the rich and we find the poor. We find the wealthy and those who have little. We find the sick and we find those who are whole. All of us come through that gate of Christ to this place and we're turned to face one another and our neighbors. And what we receive is that word that gets bottled up in us. A word that a peaceable future is possible because we've enacted the drama of peace here together again.